As most of you know, the original manuscripts of the Greek New Testament did not contain the chapter and verse divisions that we use today. As a matter of fact, they were written in all capital letters, they had little to no punctuation, and there was no spacing between words. The need for chapter and verse divisions was soon recognized, however, and from the late antiquity to the early medieval period, several systems were developed, but none of them became standard or widely used. That is, until the late 12th to early 13th century, when a brilliant theologian and scholar at the University of Paris by the name of Stephen Langton added the chapter divisions to the Latin New Testament that are largely still used today. Now, for you history buffs, this is the same Stephen Langton who became the Archbishop of Canterbury and was instrumental in the drafting of the Magna Carta. 350 years after Langton, in 1551, a French Protestant, a printer by the name of Robert Estine, published the Greek New Testament containing the chapters and verses that we still use today. For the most part, the divisions that were introduced first by Langton and then added to by Estine are, are accurate, and theologians, pastors, and Christians the world over are indebted to their work. But the more that I study this section of Mark's gospel, the more convinced I become that they erred when it comes to the ending of Mark 4. I think that Mark 4.35 to Mark 5.43 belongs together as one unit, as one chapter. In other words, I don't think that Mark's account of the calming of the storm belongs with the kingdom parables of Mark chapter 4. I think it belongs with the demonstration of Christ's power and authority in chapter 5. The common theme of those three stories, the calming of the storm, the Gerizim demoniac, and the healing of the woman with the issue of blood and the raising of Jairus' daughter, are the authority that Jesus Christ possesses over every conceivable realm and the people's response to that authority. That's the common thread that ties those three stories together. Let me show you what I mean. In Mark 4, 35 to 41, Jesus demonstrates his authority over the forces of nature. As he commands the, the wind and the sea to cease their raging and immediately they comply. In response to this awesome display of power, Jesus' disciples are struck with terror and they question whether they may have underestimated this rabbi whom they follow. In Mark 5, 1-20, Jesus demonstrates his authority over the forces of evil as a legion of demons grovel before him and beg for mercy, having been summarily expelled from the man they once inhabited. Jesus grants to them a temporary clemency, and he allows them to enter into a herd of pigs, which they immediately drown in the Sea of Galilee. In response, the former demoniac is clothed and in his right mind and sitting at the feet of Jesus, asking permission just to go with him, just to be with him. But the people of the region were terrified of Jesus, and they beg him to depart and simply to leave them alone. In Mark 5, 21 to 43, 
Jesus demonstrates his authority over sickness and even death as he heals the woman who had been tormented by a gynecological issue for 12 years, and then he raises Jairus' daughter from the dead. Once again, in that story, as we'll see next week, fear and faith play a prominent role in the response of the people who witness these events. So the point of Mark 5, including the calming of the storm at the end of what is Mark 4, is that Jesus is Lord and that his divine authority is without limitation. The question of Mark 5 is, then, what are you going to do about it? That's the question raised by this chapter. Mark chapter 5 demands a verdict. You cannot observe Jesus commanding the obedience of the wind and the waves and all of the forces of nature. You cannot observe Jesus' exercising of authority over the demonic and all the forces of evil. You cannot observe Jesus so coursing with power that healing comes to one who simply touches the fringe of his garment. You cannot observe Jesus commanding a dead girl to come back from beyond the grave and just remain unimpressed and unaffected by what you read. Either it's true or it's not. And if it's true, it demands from you a verdict. You cannot remain indifferent to the Jesus of Mark chapter 5 any more than you can pretend that a category 5 hurricane bearing down upon your home isn't going to dramatically impact your life. You cannot keep Jesus at arm's length. Though many have tried, like the Gerizines who begged Jesus to just just leave us alone. Go away and leave us alone. That response will not last. Jesus Christ is Lord, and you must either deal with him now, or you will deal with him later but you cannot ignore him indefinitely. And Mark chapter 5 makes this plain. But Mark chapter 5 also makes plain that those who will deal with Christ now will find him exerting all of his sovereign authority in mercy for your good. So like the demoniac, like the woman with the discharge of blood, and like Jairus, Mark chapter 5 urges us to come to Jesus that he may make us whole. And that is the cry of this text. That's the charge that I want to hang over this entire message. Come to Jesus and he will make you whole. He will leave you clothed and in your right mind and sitting at his feet. So the theme of today's passage, in keeping with the theme of all of Mark 5, including what I think should be in Mark 5, the calming of the storm, is Jesus' absolute authority over all the forces of evil. Now before we get started on the exposition of this text, I need to make a point as to the relevance of this passage for First Baptist Nixa. Okay? You may be wondering... 
How does a passage which describes the exorcism of a legion of demons from a first century Middle Eastern man have any relevance for me? Most of us, if not all of us, I would be very surprised if there are any exceptions, have no first-hand experience with demonic possession. You've never experienced it. You've never witnessed it. The closest you've ever come is seeing it in movies. And you're not quite sure, and rightly so, how accurate that depiction really is. So how exactly is spending 45 minutes describing Jesus' authority over demons going to impact your life today? Well, to that question, I need to make three responses. I'm going to give you three reasons why this sermon is of immediate relevance to each and every one of us. Reason number one, simply put, you do not know that you have no firsthand experience of demonic activity. What makes you so sure? In the same way that the best spies and the best saboteurs are those you never know about and never hear about, so it would seem to me that the most effective and deadly demons are those which you never see. I think this is the most significant contribution of C.S. Lewis's The Screwtape Letters. Because in it, Lewis articulates just how banal and innocuous most demonic activity probably is. In the book, Screwtape, who is a senior demon, is writing letters to his nephew, Wormwood, who is a junior demon in the service of Satan, and he is advising him as to the most effective way to ensure that his patient is not lost to the enemy by whom he means God, but rather remains on the road to hell where in Lewis's conception, the demonic host feed upon the misery of the damned. And in this letter, or in these letters, rather, Screwtape never advises Wormwood to inhabit his patient and turn him into a raving, foaming lunatic. Never. Rather, Screwtape advises Wormwood upon a far more subtle, ordinary, even dull, course of action. Like, in one letter he tells them, you should create friction and annoyance between your patient and his mother. Or, you should sow seeds of discontent in the patient's relationship with his fiance that will not manifest itself until 10 years into marriage. Or, you should encourage his new friendship with a couple of self-important cynics. For example, in one letter, Screwtape describes how he once managed to keep a former patient from considering matters of eternal significance. And he wrote this, I once had a patient, a sound atheist, who used to read in the British Museum. One day as he sat reading, I saw a train of thought in his mind begin to go the wrong way. The enemy, of course, was at his elbow in a moment. Before I knew where I was, I saw 20 years' work begin to totter. If I had lost my head and begun to attempt a defense by argument, I should have been undone, but I was not such a fool. I struck instantly at the part of the man which I had best under my control and suggested that it was just about time he had some lunch. The enemy presumably made the counter-suggestion, 
you know how one can never quite overhear what he says to them, that this was more important than lunch. At least I think that must have been his line for when I said quite. In fact, much too important to tackle at the end of a morning. The patient brightened up considerably, and by the time I had added, much better come back after lunch and go into it with a fresh mind, he was already halfway out the door. Once he was in the street, the battle was won. I showed him a newsboy shouting the midday paper and a number 73 bus going past, and before he reached the bottom of the steps, I had gotten into him an an unalterable conviction that whatever odd ideas may come into a man's head when he is shut up alone with his books, a healthy dose of real life, by by which he meant the bus and the newsboy, was enough to show him that all that sort of thing just couldn't be true. He is safe in our father's house now. If Lewis is right, and I think he is, then demonic activity in our modern, post-enlightenment, rationalistic age does not ordinarily take the form of the kind of possession that we find in Mark 5 or on the silver screen. It looks like the strange coincidence that every time you open your Bible to read, your phone dings with an email. Or every time you begin to pray, your mind wanders to the movie that you watched last night that you probably shouldn't have. It is far more subtle, far more sophisticated, far less visible, and far more deadly because it occurs right under our noses and we're never even aware of it until it is too late. That's reason number one. This message about Jesus' authority over all the powers of evil has immediate relevance for every one of us. Reason number two. Full-blown demonic possession of the sort described in this chapter is still a present reality, though not in the circles in which most of us run. Now, I believe on the testimony of missionaries who go into the dark places of the earth, into cultures that are dominated for long centuries by animism and spiritism in its various forms, that demonic possession of this sort is still very much a thing. I'll never forget, ever, the missions class that I took from Dr. Howard Bickers in seminary. He had been a missionary in Malawi in the 1960s and 1970s which, with what was then known as the Foreign Mission Board. In many of the places that he ministered, he was the first white person that they had seen since David Livingston in the 19th century. And the stories he told of the demonic power that he encountered there would, I promise you, make you shudder. And it still, some 30 years later, gave him PTSD. Or, you could ask those ministers of the gospel who work amidst the dark underbelly of even our more enlightened cultures where drug addiction and sexual deviance reigns, you ask them about demonic possession. Or ask those who have come out of New Age spiritism and occultism, ask them about demonic possession. Demonic possession is still a reality, and it may not be so far removed from us as many of us would like to think. Reason number three, that this message about Jesus' authority over 
all the forces of evil has immediate relevance for each and every one of us is because the human heart is capable of unimaginable evil quite on its own. In other words, human beings do not have to be possessed by demons to commit acts of unspeakable wickedness. Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and is desperately wicked. Well, who holds power over a desperately wicked heart? Matthew 15.18, Jesus himself says, What comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a man. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. Evidently, the human heart is a ceaseless fountain of iniquity. Who wields the power and the authority to change that kind of cesspool? The human heart is just as much a force of evil as a legion of demons. If you don't believe me, Just think of the endless lists of genocides that mark human history, the most recent of which is the brutal massacre of the Rohingya Muslims that is occurring as we speak in western Myanmar, that is Burma. This is going on right now in our enlightened age, okay? Just listen and weep at this account that was published by The Guardian back in September. It was a fast-flowing river, that doomed the inhabitants of Tula Toli. Snaking around the remote village on three sides, the treacherous waters allowed Burmese soldiers to corner and hold people on the river's sandy banks. Some were shot on the spot. Others drowned in the current as they tried to escape. Zahir Ahmed made a panicked dash for the opposite bank where he hid in thick jungle and watched his family's last moments. I was right next to the water, he recalled in an interview a week later at a refugee camp in neighboring Bangladesh, his eyes bloodshot and his shirt stained with sweat and dirt. Ahmed said teenagers and adults were shot with rifles while babies and toddlers, including his youngest daughter, six-month Hasina, were just thrown into the river. He cried as he described seeing his wife and children die, meticulously naming and counting them on both hands until he ran out of fingers. A United Nations report released this year describes mass killings and gang rapes by the Burmese armed forces. So demons are not the only source of evil from which we need deliverance. Mike told me as he was preparing the slides that he had trouble finding pictures that weren't too graphic to show on a Sunday morning. We, as a people, are unbelievably evil. And we need to be delivered from ourselves. And the point of this passage is that Jesus possesses all authority to deliver us from all evil, whether it is the evil from outside of us in the form of the demonic or the evil from inside of us in terms of the iniquity of our own hearts. This morning, I have three truths to draw out of this passage, truths that I hope now you will see the relevance of for First Baptist Nixa. If we are to be delivered from evil, such deliverance will only come from Christ. 
before whom the demons tremble, the Christ who speaks a word, and a demonized man, an evil man, is sitting at his feet and clothed in his right mind. And my prayer is that that's the condition in which every one of you will find yourself this morning. Clothed in your right mind and sitting at the feet of Jesus, desiring nothing more than just to be with Him. First, truth that we learn from this passage. This text gives us a hard, visceral look at the devastation of evil. The effect that this legion of demons had upon this man, it's almost too hard to watch. They absolutely dehumanized him. They stripped him of every last vestige of the image of God and in effect turned him into a beast. Beginning in verse 1. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerizines. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. Now, I think a word is in order about the location of this story. Mark says that it took place on the other side of the sea. On the day prior, if we turn to the beginning of Mark 1, you'll find that they were on the western shore around the area of Capernaum, and so this must be on the eastern shore. Now, your Bible may have a slightly different name for the country to which Jesus comes. The ESV, NIV, NASB, they have Gerizines. If you're in the King James Version or the New King James, you have Gadarenes. Uh, Some may even have Gergesenes. Um, There's an interesting academic discussion, interesting if you're a nerd like me anyway, regarding the identification of this location, but it's not cogent to our purposes for this morning. So suffice it to say, if you're looking on a map and you're trying to locate where did this event take place, it's on the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee, probably in the ancient town of Kursi, which is pronounced Gersa or Gursa in the local dialect. About a mile south of this town, there is, you can still go there and see it, a fairly steep slope within about 40 yards of the shore, and about two miles from there are cavern tombs. That's probably where Jesus set foot in Mark 5. Now, what is most significant about our discussion of this place is that this town was on the western border of a region known as the Decapolis, uh, which simply is Greek for the ten cities. Uh, The Decapolis is in what is today known as the Golan Heights. You see it up there to the north and east of the Sea of Galilee. The Decapolis was a predominantly Gentile region, and it was a center of Greco-Roman culture as evidenced by the presence of a large herd of swine that would never have been found in a Jewish territory. Swine, pigs, are utterly unclean to the Jews. So one commentator writes, Thus Jesus meets a man with an unclean spirit, living among unclean tombs, surrounded by unclean people, employed in unclean occupations, all in unclean Gentile territory. You catch a theme? In other words, Jesus left Jewish Galilee and traveled to an unclean person to meet just about the most unclean man imaginable. 
It's not the healthy who need the physician. It is the sick. It is not the clean who need the holy one. It's the filthy. So, I don't know who you are, where you may have come from, what you may have done, what secrets lie in your past. But just from the location of verse 1, just from the location, you should not doubt his willingness to save. He demonstrates it over and over again. There is no one, there is no one too far gone or too unclean that they are beyond his authority, his ability, or his willingness to save, to clean, to clothe, to put in their right mind, and to place them at his feet. Now just look at what these demons had done to this man. He acted like a wild and vicious animal, and so the people of Gergesa treated him as such. They drove him out of town and into the wilderness. He lived among the tombs, communing with demons in the land of the dead. He posed such a danger to himself and to others that the townspeople had attempted to subdue him. Uh, Subdue is the Greek word demazo, and it's the word that's used in the Bible for the taming of a wild beast. That's what they tried to do with this man. They chained him up like a wild beast with shackles and chains, and that was successful for a time, but eventually his supernatural strength wrenched the chains apart and broke the shackles in pieces. What you get here is the picture of a man whose identity is so shredded, his personality is so shattered that he's reduced to less than an animal. He simply shrieks and screams out among the tombs and on the mountains and and gashes and cuts himself all over with sharp rock. This legion of demons was feeding on him like a parasite until they had utterly dehumanized him. Why? What did they get from it? Why would they do this to this man? C.S. Lewis imagined that somehow or other they feed on their misery. But I think the answer goes even even deeper and even more simple than that. Why do they do this to this man and to others? Because they hate God. And they hate His image in man. This was an assault upon God and upon those who are made in His image. And what they want to do more than anything else is destroy every vestige of the image of God in creation. And that's precisely what evil does. Every stripe of evil, demonized men and simply men who have given themselves over to all manner of debased iniquity. Sin, evil, dehumanizes us. It doesn't matter whether the sin comes from outside in the form of demonic activity or arises from within in the form of the depravity of our own hearts. Evil is subhuman. Simply put, it's beneath us. 
And it causes us to act like less than we are. It causes us to act like beasts, worse than beasts even. Jude picks up on this theme when he likens those who are overcome by evil to unreasoning animals who act not according to rationality, not according to whether it's good or evil or right and wrong, but according to instinct. I feel like it, so I'm going to do it. That's what animals do, not men made in the image of God. Peter compares those who forsake the way of righteousness and return to their sin to a dog that returns to eat its vomit or a sow that returns to wallow in the mud. He says that's what it's like to be a human and give yourself over to wickedness. The evil of Satan and of sin, of demons and of our own innate depravity wreaks devastating consequences on a human being and it ravages their soul and it shreds their personality and it shatters the image of God within them. And the question of this text is, what hope is there for such people? Is there hope for such people? What hope is there for the demonized? What hope is there for the meth addict? What hope is there for the porn addict? What hope is there for the pedophile? Is there? Or perhaps more to home and more to the C.S. Lewis screw tape variety of evil. What hope is there for the Sunday school teacher who trusts in his own righteousness yet is totally consumed by spiritual pride as he thinks himself better than everyone else? Or what hope is there for the PTA president and the soccer mom who worships her children above all else and would quite literally sell her soul if it would get them into the right college or onto the right sports team? Is there any hope for all those in bondage to all manner of evil. And Mark chapter 5 exists to say, yes, there is. Verse 6, out of the boat steps Jesus like a conquering king into enemy territory. The demons come to him. Why? Because they know that they cannot fight and they know that they cannot flee and so they simply come to him in servile, groveling submission. And they plead for mercy. Verse 6, And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him and crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? And he replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. I want you to notice there's absolutely no power struggle. 
There's no question of who's in charge. These demons are not roaring like lions. They're sniveling like little brats. There's no question of Jesus' authority to command these demons to do whatever he wills, and they will do it. The demons don't even question that. Why? (laughs) Because they fear him. They fear his wrath. Oh, we could take a tangent here. Just give me one sentence. If they fear his wrath, what does that say about how we ought to think of his wrath? They fear him. And this is why anyone who bears the name of Christ, who enters into a mission for Christ as an ambassador of Christ, has nothing to fear from the forces of evil. They cannot lift a finger to harm even a hair of your head without his permission, and he only permits that which is designed for your everlasting good and your eternal joy. So if you ever find yourself in a situation, and frankly, I hope you do, on a foreign mission field perhaps, maybe in a home in Cuba, under the influence of Santeria, surrounded by idols and offerings, or maybe in a home in Haiti under the influence of voodoo, in the home of a, of a practitioner of voodoo who, who has the ability and has in the past to call forth spirits. That could have very easily happened this last July when a couple of our men went to a home. In fact, the translator, wisely or not, dared him to. There's nothing to fear because of Mark chapter 5. If you're in one of those situations and an evil spirit manifests itself and makes its presence known, do not fear. You simply hide yourself in the name of Christ who has all authority in heaven and on earth. You read scripture, you sing hymns of praise to God, you pray, and you will see who wields the power in this universe. Now, this section of Scripture raises a lot of questions about demons and demonic possession, and it's a subject of some interest to us, but unfortunately, the best we can do is speculate as to the answers. The Bible, the Bible is simply not concerned to tell you everything there is to know about the demonic realm. It simply tells you, stay away from it. For instance, how many demons inhabited this man? I mean, is, is this normal? Well, when asked his name, the man said, my name is Legion, for we are many. Okay, so the host of demons, no longer speaking through the man, now addresses Jesus directly. They say, send us to the pigs. Let us enter them. Okay? Well, we know that a legion of Roman soldiers consisted of 6,000 soldiers, 120 horsemen, and additional technical personnel. Is that an indicator of how many demons inhabited this man? I don't know, but it was a lot. At the very least, it speaks of a multitude, and it has militaristic overtones. Why did they ask to enter a herd of pigs, and why did Jesus permit them? I don't know. I suspect it's simply because it's in their nature to destroy. 
And knowing that they would not be permitted to destroy the man any longer, they sought instead to destroy the herd. Why did Jesus allow this? Does he have something against pigs? No. I like John MacArthur's explanation. He says, quote, The dramatic scene provided stunning, undeniable proof that the evil spirits had left the man. It similarly demonstrates their damaging power on a massive scale. He goes on to say, The demon forces were so numerous and violent that within moments of their expulsion from the man, they were able to occupy and drown a multitude of otherwise impersonal beasts. The only power that could control them was that of the Lord Jesus. Of what were the demons afraid? Well, they say that they were afraid of Jesus tormenting them. Jesus is a tormentor of demons. In Matthew's version, they beg not to be tormented, quote, before the time. What time is that? It's the time of judgment. In Luke's version, they plead with Jesus not to command them to depart into the abyss. What's that? It seems to be some place of torment where other evil spirits are held until the day of judgment. At least that's what Jude 6 seems to indicate. Simply put, they're afraid of Jesus' wrath. What became of the demons after the death of the pigs? Hard to say. I speculate that they departed as incorporeal spirits, that is, spirits without a body, back into the Decapolis, which evidently was a region that was dominated by demonic forces hostile to the arrival of Jesus, says one commentator. The point is, I would caution you to try to construct a comprehensive demonology from this passage. In movies, you'll often see, uh, they're always Catholic priests holding forth the crucifix because uh, they have some sort of fear of, of holy instruments, as if a Catholic crucifix is a holy instrument, or, or holy water taken from Jerusalem is any more holy than what comes out of my tap, but, you know, whatever. And they hold that forward, and, and they'll demand the demon's name as if that gives them authority over them. Don't construct your demonology from movies, and don't try to construct a a thorough demonology from this text. Again, God, if he wanted you to know everything there was about the demonic realm and how to interact with it, he would have told you. Instead, he just says, stay away from them, and if you can't stay away from them, if they manifest themselves to you, hide yourself in Christ. Read the Bible, pray in Jesus' name, and you will find them flee. The main point of this section is abundantly clear. Jesus defeated these demonic forces by the sovereign authority of his command, and he didn't even break a sweat. And the change wrought in this man could not have been more radical. See, after the depiction of verses 3 to 5, the man described in the latter part of this passage is unrecognizable. Verse 14 The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. 
And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. I want you to notice three dramatic effects, three things that happen when Jesus cleanses a person from evil clothes them and places them in their right mind and sits them at his feet. Here are three things that happen in every single instance. Number one, he regained his humanity. The demons had dehumanized him. They turned him into a savage and deranged beast and not a man made in God's image. See, everything that makes us human The image of God in man, a mind that is capable of complex, abstract, rational thought, a soul which is capable of moral reasoning and discerning good from evil, a spirit capable of relating to God in prayer and worship. All of those things had been distorted, defiled, and disintegrated by this demonic horde that had inhabited this man's body. In essence, this man had ceased to be, for all intents and purposes, a person. He was an animal. But when Jesus commanded the legion of demons to leave the man's body, his humanity was instantaneously restored. And there he was, clothed in his right mind and sitting at the feet of Jesus. See, evil of every kind, again, whether it comes from outside in the form of demonic possession or from within, from the depravity that springs from the heart of man, it is dehumanizing. Sin shreds the soul of a man. It sears his God-given conscience. And it takes away from him, little by little, that which makes us human. But when Jesus delivers such a person, he restores to them God's image. He makes them a man and a woman again. Has that happened to you? It's called being born again. New birth restores the image of God within us. It it, it unsears the conscience. It, It provokes new and right affections of the heart. Considering that which is most glorious indeed to be most glorious. So that we no longer prostitute ourselves after the idols that men create. Are you clothed this morning and in your right mind, sitting at the feet of Jesus and desiring nothing more than to be like him? You can be. Second, he gained his eternity. Clearly, this man was not only delivered from demonic possession. There's evidence in the Bible that that can happen. Exorcism apart from conversion. But not this man. This man was reconciled to the living God through faith in Christ. And it's, it's quite touching, really. Who knows how long he'd been a prisoner inside his own body, defiled by the filthy horde of demons that inhabited him, deprived of all hope and joy and life and health as he sat there gashing himself over and over with, with sharp rocks. But when he was delivered from evil, all he wanted was Jesus. That's how you can tell when someone's been born again. It's clear he had friends back in town. Verse 19 tells us that. Possibly a family. 
didn't matter. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed by demons begged him that he might be with him. It's all he wanted. He just wanted to be with the deliverer. And one day he would be, just not yet. Because number three, he was given a mission. And so are we. Jesus would not allow him. He's not being mean. He would not allow him to come back with him to Capernaum. Rather, he sent him back into the darkness with a message of deliverance that this man knew not only with his mind, but he knew by his experience. Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And that's exactly what the man does. He proclaims not only to his friends, but to the whole of the Decapolis what Jesus had done for him. And the result was that everyone marveled. So have you been delivered from evil? Are you clothed and in your right mind this morning? It could be demonic activity. Could be. I'm not afraid of the possibility that there is demonic activity at work in Nixa. It could be a dehumanizing addiction to alcohol or meth or heroin or pornography or some other debasing evil causes you to act like a beast. It matters not. If the Lord has delivered you from evil, then you have been given a mission to go back into the darkness and to tell them of the deliverer who has absolute authority over every force of evil, even the evils of the human heart. Every person born into this world is enslaved to evil. Because of the fall of man, the human heart is a cesspool of depravity. And though that depravity may find its expression in any number of different ways, Some of them are recognized as debased and filthy. Some of them just seem to us normal and accepted. Whatever evil it is, I tell you the truth, it is dehumanizing and it is shredding your soul. But Jesus Christ has authority to deliver you from that evil. He can speak a word and you will be sitting at his feet clothed and in your right mind. You have only to call out to him in faith. But there is one evil in this passage that we have yet to mention. It is the most heartbreaking verse in this story. And it's not verse 3, and it's not verse 4, and it's not verse 5. It is verse 17. And they began to beg Jesus to go away, to depart from their region. The deliverer had come to them, possessing all authority over every evil that held them in bondage, and they feared him more than the evil and the demons. The only one who could deliver them from evil and set them free had come across the sea, set foot on their land, and they begged him to leave. The greatest evil in this passage is the evil of the Gerizines who rejected God's mercy. Maybe they did not think that they needed him because they didn't look like this guy. I think that's part of it. We're not cutting ourselves out among the tombs and screaming out out of our minds, so therefore we're not that bad. We're not addicted to meth. Or heroin like those other people. 
pedophilia, homosexuality. We're not like them. Your evil and your sin will destroy you in just the same way. And it's made perhaps worse by two factors. Number one, you know it's wrong. You know better. And number two, it happens right underneath your nose without you even realizing it. For whatever reason, they rejected his mercy. They were afraid of him because they could not control him. They could not chain him up like the demonized man and keep him at arm's length. They they could do no such thing with Jesus. Either way, whether they didn't think he needed him or they didn't want him because they couldn't control him, they did not recognize that they needed Jesus to do for them what he had done for the man. They needed to be delivered from the evil of their own heart and be reconciled to the living God. They needed Jesus to clothe them and restore them to the image of God. So First Baptist Nixa, do not make the same mistake this morning. You are far more evil than you realize. And Jesus is far more powerful and merciful than you could ever dream. So today... Jesus has set foot upon the soil of this gathered church where two or three are gathered in his name. He is here. He's here. He is here with all authority and all power, and he can cast out the evil that controls you, constrains you, dehumanizes you, and is destroying you. Do not ignore him. Do not ask him to leave. Come to him and be whole and be healed and be clean. Be clothed and put in your right mind and come sit at his feet.